comes the weekly review with Roman today. It's Friday, March 27th, 2020. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco in the Mission District. We're on Ohlone land, and I want to encourage folks to give to the Shumi land tax, and you can find that by going to S-H-U-U-M-I land tax if you Google that, and you will be taken to the Segorite Land Trust page. And also, if you want to learn about the history of the land that we're on in San Francisco, if you go to ramitash.com, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com. Um, yeah, so back in studio, it's been another week that's felt like a year, and I used to say that before this mess happened, and uh, even more so now, and I think that's partially a lot of the frustration. I'm feeling a lot of frustration and anger, and I'm also in a more privileged position than many folks, and I recognize that. And it's really the situation that we're in is just from so much of what folks have been fighting against for so long and fighting against uh, corporations getting bailed out while people do not. And people have been fighting for people getting health care and for people to be not arrested in the first place and then when they are to be released from prison and jail and to ensure that everyone has a house and everyone has medical care and medical professionals are taken care of and accounted for and get everything that they need. And instead, it's been just a whole a fucking country of militarization and uh, a lot of propaganda and a lot of violence and state violence and punishment and rigged elections, and here we are. So, yep, that's that's pretty much it. So that's that's my summary of it from my understanding of it, and it's adding to this crisis um, because it's, it's not just like, oh, wow, it... We're only here because a person in position of power mishandled it. It's like, no, look at the history and look at how everything that's been in place for hundreds of years here. And that's that's why we're here. It didn't just come out of nowhere. And people were suffering before this. And if more folks had listened to those of us who were fucking yelling and saying, hey, we need to change the systems that are in place and create something different, um, then things might feel a little bit easier right now and we wouldn't be in this panicked situation. Oh, goodness. I do want to provide some support and warmth and also clearly I'm pretty agitated and pretty angry and it's a lot of the things I'm finding is that my previous coping mechanisms that I would turn to before since I, you know, am prone to anxiety and depression like many people would be like exercise for instance and that's not something I've been able to really do. And um, so that's a big, a big piece is that I think a lot of our coping mechanisms are not available to a lot of us, whether that's going to performing or going to shows or seeing people or being out in nature or there are so many things that I think a lot of us used and have been able to use in order to deal with what was, what's been happening that's no longer available. And so just wanting to call that out. And someone else I spoke to had a really good a perception of why I've been feeling really fucking tired, even though I feel like I've also, I'm, I'm like so lethargic, even though I feel like I'm not doing as much as I used to and like was mentally exhausted, physically exhausted, psychologically exhausted. And I think part of that, um, so she was saying that part of it's like we're in this fight or flight response where we know something dangerous is happening and we want to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And it's difficult to act because first of all, we don't have as much information as we could. And also we don't know when something's going to happen yeah, we're, we're hearing misinformation. There's only so much we can do. A lot of it is just staying home and protecting ourselves in that regard. And also it's um, 
one can't help but feel really helpless in a way too where i think a lot of us there are ways that folks can donate masks and donate funds to folks who need it and push back against the folks in positions of power who want to bail out large corporations and not working people and at the same time it's really there's just so much uh tension and frustration and fear i think going on that in a way, I know for, for me, it's definitely prevented me from acting as much as I would like, where I do believe in that, you know, making sure that one's okay before helping someone else. And it's really hard to um, reach out to other folks if you yourself are not feeling um, up for the task or feeling okay. So wanting to name that and put that out there. I'm going to be mostly listening to things today on the show. I'll be playing audio clips of a few other things. We've got a guest calling in around one fifteen. And today's record of the week is Ella Fitzgerald's Sunshine of Your Love, courtesy of the San Francisco Public Library. Yay, libraries. This came out in 1969. Wow. Cool. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty awesome. So we'll be playing that throughout the show. And I do – There is last week I provided a lot of resources for folks, so please do check out last week's show and the show before. You can find us at mutinyradio.fm in the archive on Fridays. And because I do feel like – it's a responsibility to share information of what folks can do for mutual aid and for support. So there's a live document that's up. It's bit, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash COVID-19, the number 19, collective care. And that's a live document that folks can add and edit. And it has nationwide and I think even more international resources as well. People keep on adding to it. And there's just so much, there's a wealth of information there. So I want to encourage folks to look into that. If you're looking for ways that you can support someone else or if you need support, uh, please do check that out. Also, I've been sharing a lot of information on Twitter. So that's one way um, I most likely, I'm just not going to be able to get to everything I've been. I've been reading a lot and sharing a lot. And if you would like to, please do follow me on Twitter. Just go to the Twitter website and twitter.com. And then my R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R is uh, my handle on there. So at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. I've been sharing a lot of information on there. So if you're looking for more info, please do check that out. And I'm going to start with um, a talk that was given yesterday and was posted by Haymarket Books. So I won't have a chance to play the entire conversation today because it's about, um, in total, after it begins, it's maybe like an hour and a half. So we don't have time to do the whole thing, but I think there's a lot of good information in it. And it's called How to Beat Coronavirus Capitalism. And it's with uh, Naomi Klein, uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, Astra Taylor, and with music from Leah Rose. That was put together by Haymarket Books, Debt Collective, The Leap, and the DSA. And you can find it at Haymarket Books in, in full. So if you go to at Haymarket Books, you can find this video, which was posted 20 hours ago. Also, or it was posted 20 hours ago also by Rampant Magazine, and that's at Rampant Mag. And the title they have is Governments Should Fail for What We Are Seeing Right Now. And that's from Naomi A. Klein. So I'm going to play this. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's what I'm going to do. Cool. So stay tuned. And uh, we'll be back in a bit. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. And I'm just waiting for this to start up. Thanks to everyone for joining us on this call. These are truly extraordinary times. Extraordinary people 
to help us understand this moment and where we go from here. And we are also extremely lucky to have with us a brilliant musician, Leah Rose, who will be performing a song at the end of this conversation. I'm Anthony Arnov of Haymarket Books, and I'm going to help facilitate this call. I want to first thank our four co-sponsors, Haymarket Books, The Leap, Debt Collective, and the Democratic Socialists of America. During this call, we'll share some information about each of our hosts, how to follow them, and how to support their work. We'll also share links for our speakers and for our musical artists. This video is being recorded and we can share it afterwards on the Haymarket Books YouTube channel. So please like this video and subscribe to this channel if you can, share it with others. You can also follow Haymarket and sign up on our email list to find out about other upcoming events, including our online teaching on Tuesday, March 31st at 5 p.m. Eastern with Mike Davis and you can register for that event now on Eventbrite. On Haymarket's email list and social media channels, you can also find out about special deals like our 10 free ebook giveaway, which is active for six more days and includes books by Naomi and Kianga as part of those free offers. And also uh, the print editions of Naomi's vital books, not enough about paradise, edition and the Spanish are on sale for 70% off right now. Our speakers will each have an introduction and we'll have time to each other before we read out some audience questions. Please post your questions on the live video feed wherever you're watching this. If that's on the Haymarket YouTube, comment on the stream. Twitter, just post a reaction directly under the video. Uh, then we'll conclude with final comments and a song from Leah. Uh, we'll try to wrap this all up under around 90 minutes. We really appreciate your patience with us. We had 25,000 people RSVP for this event, which is really exciting. And just watching the YouTube feed, I can see people coming to this from Chile, from Finland, from Argentina, from Canada, from countries all around the world. So exciting to have you with us. Uh, we hope many more people are going to tune in, uh, but this is new for us. We're used to hosting in-person events, so we may need your forbearance if we have any technical issues along the way. So our first speaker this evening uh, is Naomi Klein, uh, the author of numerous critical works. Uh, and uh, I really encourage everyone, if they have not already, uh, to watch her latest video at The Intercept, coronavirus capitalism and how to beat it. And now I'll turn things over to Naomi. Well, thank you, Anthony. And um, it is really wonderful to be with all of you. And thank you all for, for tuning in in the thousands. It's really, really moving. We didn't expect so many people. Um, uh, you know, to put this in perspective, Joe Biden had 2,000 people <laughs> watching his uh, um, special uh, happy hour yesterday. Um, yes, he called it a happy hour, virtual happy hour, and we have more than 5,000 right off the off the bat, which I think would indicate that people are not that into, uh, not not that happy at the moment, and want to be talking about um, 
the sorts of uh, incredible profiteering, corporate opportunism, really um, uh, daylight robbery that we are seeing, a theft um, of, uh, of, of the public wealth of the commons um, uh, and, and an enclosure of that commons in the interest of the people who are already obscenely wealthy. We are also seeing attacks on civil liberties, on democratic rights, and I am very happy to hear that we have people tuning in from around the world because this is a global crisis. It is a global pandemic that respects no borders. And unfortunately, we have leaders around the world who are swapping um, worst practices, um, whether it is um, you know, Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi, um, uh, and, and, and so many others uh, uh, who are looking at the way uh, each other are exploiting this crisis. Um, and so we need to be trading strategies as well. Um, I, wanna, I wanna welcome our, our viewers from Chile. I know, I know that um, Chileans just um, went under lockdown, I believe just today. Um, so here we are <laughs> and um, as, as some of you know, I have been writing about how shocks, how, how tremendous disasters uh, have been systematically harnessed by our elites in order to push through a pre-existing wish list of policies, uh, the ideas that are lying around, as Milton Friedman said um, uh, four decades ago now, um, when he said only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. And he went on to say that, I believe, is our basic function, to keep the ideas ready for when the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. So I think it's significant that the crises are actual. This is not a conspiracy. This is not to say that there isn't a crisis that needs decisive action. There most certainly is. Um, but we are seeing a very selective use of emergency measures, right? Uh, the utilization and the instrumentalization and indeed the weaponization of states of emergencies to offload risks onto individual workers, onto individual families, um, while the people who are already most cushioned are getting these no strings attached bailouts. Um, so, you know, I don't want to take up too much time here off the top, um, but I just want to share a few, a, a few thoughts. Um, I'm speaking to you uh, from the United States, uh, from my home in New Jersey. Um, and um, when I wrote Noah is Not Enough, for Haymarket Books, which I believe <laughs> Haymarket has been offering books at a very steep discount in the midst of all this, which is what's one of the things that's wonderful about having a socialist publisher, indeed offering uh, many titles uh, for free, um, which we really appreciate. Um, but when I wrote No Is Not Enough for Haymarket right after Trump was elected, I have a little section about Trump's, what I called the disaster capitalism cabinet, right? Mm. Um, because I think, you know, there is a, an extreme focus on Trump in these moments, but it's very important to understand that he has surrounded himself with this cabinet of former CEOs, um, 
politicians with a long track record of serving the interests of corporations. And some of them have a very, very um, uh, uh, troubling track record when it comes to exploiting previous crises. So I want to highlight, because there has been so much focus on Trump and, and sometimes a sort of a tendency to treat other people around him as less dangerous, I want to focus on two of the figures who are most um, essential to the U.S. government's response to the coronavirus, um, and that's Mike Pence and Steve Mnuchin. Um, uh, when I, Mike Pence, it, it is very much worth remembering. When I wrote The Shock Doctrine, um, which came out in 2007, it, it opened and closed with the story of Hurricane Katrina and how that disaster was systematically exploited in a textbook of what I call the shock doctrine, right? And it's a textbook because what we had and what I reported on at the time, but it was also reported on, it was it, it, the Wall Street Journal broke the story, was that when New Orleans was still underwater, um, there was a meeting that was held in Washington at the Heritage Foundation which was chaired by the Republican study group, and they came up with what they called 32 free market solutions to Hurricane Katrina and low um, gas prices. And that wish list was privatizing the public school system. Um, it was opening up wild, wild, uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling. Um, it was um, getting rid of all kinds of labor protections. It was a 15% flat tax. It was all of the, it was the whole wish list. And the person who chaired that meeting was Mike Pence because he was the head of the Republican study group. He was in, in many ways the architect of the looting of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast in the aftermath. Hello, sweetheart. I warned people about that. <laughs> you know, we're not going to pretend that everything is normal when it's not. We're working from home. This is my son, Toma. Can I say hi? Hello. All right. This is... And do you want to go get smoke? All right. Don't trip over that wire, sweetheart. Do not trip over that wire. All right. Thank you. Uh, no, I mean, look, the New York Times published this article <laughs> today or yesterday saying, you know, proper etiquette during Zoom calls, no kids or pets allowed. And I think this is part of this broader way that all of the risk and burden of this crisis is being offloaded um, onto individuals, right? I mean, I think obviously incredibly privileged, but the fact is, you know, my son's school is closed indefinitely. And it's really hard to pretend that my home is a workplace. It's not. It is where he lives and there is no school. And we're running some sort of ad hoc homeschool here. And, and, and you're all part of the curriculum now. <laughs> anyway. Um, <clears throat> and Kianga, I do think you should let Ellison join. <laughs> Kanga's son Ellison needs to make a, ca a cameo. All right, here's smoke. All right, okay. All right, no, well, this is a serious point here. I know. All right, so here's smoke. You asked for it. All right, this is smoke. I promised that smoke would make a cameo. And this is smoke and Toma. All right, guys. Come on, you guys. All right, now, now they'll come back at the end just to hear Leah sing. That's the plan. You'll come back for the end, all right, Toma? See you at the end. See you at the end. So that's Mike Pence, and he is the, the person who, who Trump put in charge of the pandemic response. Then there's Steve Mnuchin, who is now in charge of $500 billion uh, corporate slush fund. Um, 
there are some strings attached to how this money can be allocated, including things like no corporate um, uh, you know, stock buybacks. But then it says right after all the conditions that all of these conditions can be waived at the at the discretion of Steve Mnuchin. Now, what is relevant about that is that during the last financial crisis, Steve Mnuchin was personally one of the major profiteers um, of that crisis. He purchased a California bank, um, One West, and earned the nickname the Foreclosure King because he collected $1.2 billion from the government to help cover the losses for foreclosed homes and evicted tens of thousands of people, uh, this bank, between 2009 and 2014. One attempted foreclosure involved a 90-year-old woman who was behind on her payments by 27 cents, okay? So this is the individual who has been put in charge of that $500 billion fund. So yes, we need to focus on Trump and hit the way his hotels will probably end up profiting from this, but this is not just about Trump, right? And it is not just about the United States. Um, you know, we are, we are, we are, this is, this is a global phenomenon. Um, so we have, we have, um, you know, some hard won uh, um, elements in the bailout in the U.S. that are not as good as what we've seen in Europe, um, but that nonetheless are better than what the Republicans were, were, were intending to do in terms of funds for small businesses, in terms of increases for unemployment insurance, in terms of, uh, you know, a $1,200 a month uh, um, means tested bailout for individuals who lose their jobs. But if you zoom out to the scale of this, right, which is more than two trillion, it is more like six trillion when you include the money that's being pumped in by uh, into the money system um, by the Fed, um, it really is crumbs for working people. Um, and and and, they, and and people have to fight for those crumbs. And it may be months before they get their crumbs, and they might not get them at all. And then um, the sums of money, the absolute cascade of money that is being showered on the corporate sector, as I said, um, with with um, the ability to cut the, 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 the paltry strings that have been attached um, at will by somebody with a proven and extremely... Um, a, a disgraceful track record of profiting off of the last global financial crisis. So that is where we are at. But I think it goes further than that. And, and I, you know, there are moments where I feel like what we are seeing is a kind of a, a fast forward, a glimpse of, of the Silicon Valley dystopia that, um, that, that was already in store for us, but it has just kind of, we've all just been catapulted to it faster, right? And, and like I said, this is not a conspiracy theory. I believe in social distancing. We need to be in our homes. We have to do it. And a large part of the reason why we have to do it is because our leaders failed to heed warning signs um, and, and impose brutal economic austerity on the, the public healthcare system <clears throat> to the extent that it was already cut to the bone um, and it was already overstretched and had no ability to, in, to, to deal with this kind of an influx that we're seeing. Um, but we, we, we do need to separate ourselves now. But the fact is that the way in which we're separating ourselves means that we are now spending our lives, many of us, glued to screens. Um, our social relations are mediated by corporate platforms like YouTube at the moment as uh, the platform on which we speak. Um, 
Twitter, Facebook, um, uh, and so on. And, and you know, our, our, our daily caloric intake is being delivered to us by Amazon Prime, DoorDash, all of these gig employers. Um, and, and the people who are doing that labor are incredibly vulnerable. And one can certainly imagine that the people who are profiting most from this, like Jeff Bezos, um, see the only weakness in this, the fact that it is humans who have to be delivering us the food and the packages and that would much prefer that it was drones and robots and people who didn't get sick um, or not people, but, but uh, entities that don't get sick. Um, so we are seeing, I think we are getting a glimpse of the world that Silicon Valley would like to deliver to us. And it is a really grim glimpse. And so I think it's important that we really absorb it, including the kind of distance learning that universities are moving to, towards, that schools are moving towards. This isn't the way we want to live, right? Um, we don't want our social lives to be surveillable, mineable, um, to be uh, to be to, to have our conversations be profit centers, um, uh, um, because all of it is mineable by, by Silicon Valley companies, um, and so. This is, you know, I, you know, I think we should, in a sense, see this as, as a, um, an opportunity in a way to refuse that future in the way that we come out of this crisis. And so I know that the latter half of our conversation, we're going to be focusing on how we can resist this. Um, I've spoken for about 15 minutes, so I will talk more about how we resist this later on. But one thing I really want to emphasize just in closing, because I think there's been amazing strategies that people have come up with to use technology for mutual aid. We've seen amazing worker resistance. Um, and, you know, I can't wait to hear from Astra about the way in which people are resisting debt um, in this moment. I think it is absolutely critical that we develop information redundancies. You know, I, uh, uh, Kianga and I, um, did an event um, with our friend Michelle Alexander, also organized by um, by Haymarket, right after Trump was elected, and we talked about how what we would do if there was ever a crisis, um, a massive crisis under Trump, and they tried to use that crisis to attack, you know, the civil liberties, democracy, and try to um, you know try to ban dissent in various forms. And what I said at that event was we needed to rebel. If that ever happened, we needed to rebel en masse. We, needed to do, we need to do the only thing that has ever worked to resist that type of strategy, which is go into the streets en masse. And now we find ourselves in a situation where to do that is to endanger ourselves, is to endanger our loved ones, right? This won't last for forever, but we need to develop, um, if we're going to resist this, um, we need to develop information redundancies. We need to develop new tools of civil disobedience that allows us to do this at us to disrupt at a distance. But we also cannot be relying on corporate platforms to facilitate our communications for a potential general strike. Because I do not believe that they are reliable. I believe the plug will be pulled. I mean, if you look at what Modi has done in India, if you look at what other repressive governments have done when they have faced real actual threats of disruption, social media gets cut off, or at least the parts of social media that are actually being used as tools. So um, 
I think it's people are using social media right now and these corporate platforms in innovative ways, but we cannot be reliant on them for our uh, the, 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 the ways in which we will organize true resistance um, because the attacks will come and, and we have to be ready for that. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Naomi. That was terrific. I um, next am going to introduce Astra to, to speak. I'll just briefly mention that Astra has a forthcoming book with Haymarket uh, that she has written an introduction to. It's by Debt Collective. It's called Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. So please stay tuned for details on that really important forthcoming book. We hope to have it out soon. Astra. Yes, as soon as we can update it. Um, thanks, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's amazing to be here. Thanks, Naomi, for your comments, which I will try to build on, and for reminding us about Mnuchin's past as a foreclosure king, because that, that story of him, of his bank foreclosing on a, a woman who owed 27 cents uh, really is a wonderful parable for our time about the the. the distinction between the way these giant corporate entities are treated, they can get this massive influx of public money, that's what they got today, while regular people are held to a kind of level of financial accountability that is incredibly punitive and designed to be that way. So, I mean, I guess I've been thinking a lot about language, the fact even that we're calling this a, a stimulus package today as though the economy needs to be stimulated when actually people just need to survive. That's, 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 we're in a life and death crisis. So, I'm struggling with the language that's given to us um, and, and trying to sort of reevaluate it in my head. I guess, you know, I just want to begin building off Naomi's point, you know, that the, the real pandemic here is capitalism. Coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 is an illness. And, but many, many people, you know, an unfathomable number of people in the United States alone are going to die of this disease, diseases, you know, deaths that could be prevented because they're not getting access to adequate medical care because of the shortage of ventilators, because of a shortage of staff, because they're afraid to go see a doctor because they don't want medical debt, um, because they, because our medical system is so fucking confusing that they don't even know where to get help. You know, you need referrals for everything. Um, People are going to get sick if they work in the healthcare sector because they're not given adequate masks, masks and uh, protective gear. So there are so many stories already about the fact that doctors and nurses, not to mention the staff and the you know cleaners and people who sign patients in, are either maskless or recycling paper masks or trying to bleach them and spray them with Lysol. I mean, it'd be like you know a family trying to reuse a roll of toilet paper for a month, right? These are disposable products that people are being forced to to use and reuse. So, um, you know, and people are going to be getting sick because they're going to their jobs, uh, many necessary, but many unnecessary jobs and being exposed to the disease because they're not being offered protective gear on the job. They're not being valued or taken care of. So, you know, this is, um, this is a crisis that is, you know, not just biological. It's not just about this new virus, this new pandemic. It's about the economic system we're in. I mean, hospitals, do not run with adequate resources. They're, you know, they have to run very close to the bone because administrators don't want to pay for the extra staff, right? So this is an economic problem um, that we're facing, and it's a tragedy. It's a human tragedy because people are already dying. 
Um, today, as Naomi said, you know, there was a massive corporate giveaway. There are a few, you know, tiny silver linings, but basically the number on the amount of public money that that's that's being given away is, is absolutely astounding. There are you know, estimates of over $4.5 trillion. Um, you know, and what that shows us is the money's there. The money has been there this whole time to do all sorts of other things with. We could have had beautiful universal health care. We could have had beautiful free education. We could have had paid sick leave. We could have had a jobs guarantee. All these things, you know, this whole question of how do you pay for it that we hear over and over again in the U.S. is just a total bullshit. And every time we hear that question, well, how are we going to pay for it? We should point to um, the actions that were taken today, and we should actually hear in our heads what they're really asking, which is how are we going to profit from it? Because it's not a question of paying for things. It's always the question of, you know, well, who's going to benefit and who's going to uh, who's going to profit. So the money was always there to do something different. And I think, you know, we're seeing that at the federal level. I do think this goes to the, the point Naomi made about ideas, the ideas laying around. I do think we've seen some good ideas being picked up in really interesting ways. So these are my little bits of hope. Um, you know, we're seeing, for example, the issue that the debt collective has been fighting for student debt cancellation. We had been fighting for this and fighting for student debt abolition. And, you know, even um, the Republicans, even Mnuchin, you know, considered uh, uh, some degree of student debt cancellation. You know, the Department of Education here has paused collection on student loans and uh, frozen interest. And the Democrats, they failed to succeed, but were pushing for um, uh, student debt relief is part of the package. So that's one idea, you know, that uh, has gained ground. But on a state level, on a city level, internationally, we're seeing all sorts of interesting things happening. We're seeing evictions be halted. We're seeing uh, bills be paused. We're seeing some prisoners being let out, right? We're seeing uh, transit be made free. We're seeing uh, meals be distributed. We're seeing people suddenly get paid time off and, and sick leave. So there are, all, there are good ideas be t being taken up. Um, in fact, a friend uh, and I just started a Google Doc where we could try to, to keep track of all of these things. You know, somebody just in this afternoon put that uh, rents aren't being collected in Uganda, for example. So all over the world, people are experimenting with better, more humane, sensible ideas about how to uh, put the economy in pause to save lives uh, because, you know, it's not the it's not the economy that needs to be saved. It's the economy that's killing us right now. Um, so the problem is, I think, ultimately about power. The problem is that people have no power in the United States because we don't have money. And you know, the the um, in 2008 there was a massive economic crisis caused by people basically, um, you know, playing with these these mortgages and and uh, and in the years since and whatever it's been 12 years they've basically just been rewarded for their bad behavior um, and have. You know, pushed money out the door to their shareholders and enriched themselves, and working people have become even less powerful. Um, and so, what, you know, the debt collective, which I want to explain a little bit now, basically, you know, we've always imagined, well, what would it be like if, if instead of just the financial sector being well organized and creditors being organized, debtors were organized, right? Because the majority of Americans are in debt, the majority of Americans have no wealth, right? Instead, we have debts. And our debts are other people's assets that they then buy and sell and trade um, and profit from. That's what interest is. Uh, and so the idea is that debt is an untapped form of, of power and that debtors need to get organized um, to utilize it. This 
question is, or, or this, this problem of debt, you know, it's part of why our society is so fragile right now. It's part of why people can't handle um, the economic crisis that's unfolding. I mean, 3.3 million people applied for unemployment insurance last week. Millions of people are losing their jobs. We're about to see 30% unemployment. That's probably a conservative figure. I mean, and people have no savings to fall back on. What they have instead is debt. Um, the average American dies with $62,000 of debt. I mean, it's like, so people have less, they literally have less than nothing. Um, and, you know, and so what we're about to see, first of the month is coming up, is that people are not going to be able to pay. So I guess if I have one message for this moment, you know, it's that people should feel no shame about that. They should feel outraged and indignant and get and we need to get organized. We need to go just like the title of our little pamphlet that Anthony mentioned, you know, can't pay, won't pay, and try to organize as a block. So just like labor unions organize uh, workers to withhold their labor, to uh, negotiate with the boss, we want debtors to um, collectivize their condition and to um, negotiate uh, and wield power over creditors or over the government, because often the government has its fingers in our, our debt obligations. The thing is, because people are so overextended right now in terms of debt, what's happened is basically easy access to, to credit is what's masked the last 40 years of stagnating wages, right? Wages have not gone up. More and more wealth has gone to the top. And so people have covered that up with credit cards, payday loans. Meanwhile, we've been forced to debt finance everything, even our own incarceration in this country. I mean, if you go to jail, you end up in debt. Um, so, you know, the, the truth is that uh, this is going to be a moment where the situation goes from bad to worse. People are going to go in debt uh, to credit card companies and payday loans. In fact, you know, the part of the, the uh, stimulus package today is advising sort of what are essentially payday loans for the American public. Um, people are going to go into medical debt, right, because they're going to have to have treatment for this illness. Um, and what we need to do is start organizing for that uh, and recognizing that, that that's going to be a bigger problem. And these debts are immoral. You know, nobody should have to go into debt because they're sick. Nobody should have to go to de into debt because they've been laid off by, a, by a, an employer who's taking advantage of a health emergency to get rid of um, their staff and make sure they're better positioned to survive. These are debts that uh, shouldn't exist in the first place. So the Debt Collective has been building an online platform. We think of it as a virtual factory floor, a digital space for debtors to come together and organize. Um, and we invite people to come and join us uh, you know, in this sense, I guess one theoretical point I want to make is that this question of how to organize against the distance, uh, sorry, across distance is actually all it's baked into the way our economy functions. Right. Because, um, uh, you know, we share common economic conditions. We share common forms of exploitation, even if we're not living together as neighbors and even if we're not working in the same workplace. Right. So we've always had to figure out this challenge of how we come together when when we're not in the same space. It's just that problem has been accelerated in this moment. So um, we call it economic disobedience. We believe debtors need to come together and uh, collectively refuse payment uh, to demand um, not just higher wages um, so they don't have to go into debt. But the public goods, if you have universal health care, you don't ever you don't have medical debt. If you have free public college, you won't go into student debt. Um, we piloted a student debt strike um, that launched in 2015. It has so far won $1.5 billion in student debt relief and got the issue of student debt cancellation onto the American um, political like 2020 conversation. It, you know, it was a pretty important. It's been a pretty important issue in the presidential, in the Democratic primaries at least. 
That strike is growing, and I think it's more important than ever. So that's strike.debtcollective.org, because the, the thing I'll close with, um, um, uh, Americans basically, not um, sorry, debtors in, in America right now, desperately, um, they need, they basically, you know, our debt payments are uh, money that could be better spent on things like rent, food, uh, healthcare, uh, survival, right? And uh, the government has the power to cancel all debts basically without even going to Congress. It's it's a very easy thing to do. Research shows that it would provide an economic stimulus of something like $108 billion a year. So in other words, there are 45 million student debtors. If you cancel their debts, not only are they then able to breathe a bit better in this incredibly stressful time, but everyone benefits because that money is then circulating in the economy, going to other things. So this is something that's incredibly easy to do. It's a very sort of responsible economic demand, but it's also something that is morally just because those debts were immoral um, to begin with because it was about commoditizing something, education, that shouldn't be a commodity. So we invite people to, to join us. And also, uh, um, if you do join, sorry, I keep having other things I wanna say. To be on a student debt strike is to be making zero payments. And there are lots of ways people are doing that. So a million people default on their student loans every year. So uh, in our in that case, we say, don't be ashamed that you defaulted. Declare yourself on strike. People are in deferral, forbearance. They're making uh, $0 payments because of their income. Um, in our minds, this is these are all forms of striking. And the point is to politicize a common condition, right? To not have shame, to come out of the shadows, to collectivize. And this is something we need to replicate in other areas of our lives with other forms of debt to build a new kind of economic power at this moment when working people desperately need power. So that's it. Thanks, Astra. Uh, I also wanna um, uh, say that there's some cards that are being shown of how to connect with the organizations, including Debt Collective, so you can find out about that campaign that Astra mentioned. Um, our next speaker is Kinga Yamada-Taylor. And in addition to the two books uh, from Haymarket Books, which are um, available as part of the special, uh, the free ebook of how we get free and also um, a discounted copy of from Black Liberation, sorry, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. She has a really important new book, very timely from the University of North Carolina Press called Race for Profit, How Banks and Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Homeownership. And I'll turn it over to Kinga now. Thanks, Anthony. Um, thanks, Naomi. Thanks, Astra. Um, thanks, Leah, for uh, being here um, to talk about these really uh, important um, issues. It's been a long time since we all uh, talked together, and so I'm looking forward um, to the discussion. Uh, you know, this is this is hard because there are uh, literally. Um, a million things to talk about. Uh, I, I have been um, reading, as you know, most people have uh, every shred of news um, over the last uh, couple of weeks, and so um, you know, I've organized a couple of things. So the 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 one thing I'm I'm thinking of just in direct re response to what Naomi and Astra have brought up is that I think. Um, it's an important issue to, to talk about the physical 
distance and what social distancing means for um, our organizing and uh, capacity to uh, to protest um, right now uh, when it feels like it's most necessary. Um, but I also want to say that uh, the challenges that we face are more than just physical distance. Um, I think that we have to figure out as a left um, how to bridge some of the political and social distance um, that has uh, uh, undermined, um, maybe too strong of a word, but constrained uh, the ability, um, the capability of our social movements um, thus far. Uh, and so I think some of the issues tied into that are how do we work towards a common view of the, the problems and challenges uh, that we face? Um, how do we work towards seeing our um, connection uh, as ordinary people? Um, and so in this situation, I think the old Occupy formulation uh, still has great resonance of the 1% and the 99%. And how do we um, build on the uh, connection and solidarity between the 99% um, that puts us in a, in, in a situation where our protests um, are not just uh, uh, viable, but effective. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think that this is a challenge. Um, it's been a challenge when so much of the the the, the struggles of, of people are are hidden um, from our society more general. And so, I think that start. That sounds like forty-two minutes. I'm not. Uh, I'll just say, last week there was an endless in the main depicted how the quotidian hardships of working-class life, whether that is uh, inadequate access to health care, absence of child care, low wages, no sick pay, living paycheck paycheck to paycheck, um, and housing insecurity. Uh, have been strewn all over the media. On the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer today uh, is a wide angle um, shot photograph of mostly black and brown men crowding around a uh, local soup kitchen. The headline paraphrased uh, was when food supplies run low, this well-known soup kitchen is a destination um, for poor and working class people. This is a typical the usual course of action in the U.S. is to ignore the conditions of poverty and hardship. Outside of the unusual circumstances produced by a crisis within the status quo, the lives of working class people are hidden. A disproportionate number of people are black, Latinx, immigrants, relative to the market. Mainstream news sources where popular consciousness and developed with the story of the rich, famous, and beautiful, the celebrated and worshipped, we end up with a distorted view of American society. Society looks richer, healthier, whiter than it actually is. Life almost always looks easy, save the drama that all stars, celebrities encounter at one time or another. 
The effect is to convince ordinary people that their problems are their own. It meshes well with the ingrained and widely accepted premise of the American dream, where the United States is supposedly a country with unencumbered social mobility, where hard, thing, hard work can make anything possible. Personal responsibility, uh, success is attributed to personal responsibility, as is failure. Um, whether you succeed or not uh, is based on your own personal attributes and behavior, so we are told. And the more that the lives of ordinary people are excluded, the more that this seems true. And when it seems the truest, most ordinary people are left feeling isolated, burdened, and weighed down by blaming themselves or others like them for their own problems. Of course, some blame elected officials or even the rich, but they may see themselves as exceptional or just cynical. But there are times, typically in the midst of a crisis, when the true character of our society reveals itself and the brutality of our social hierarchy is laid bare. In 2005, when Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath ravaged the Gulf Coast, it too provided a deeper look into the darkness of U.S. inequality. As actor Danny Glover said at the time, quote, when the hurricane struck the Gulf and the flood waters rose and tore through New Orleans, plunging its remaining population into a carnival of misery. It did not turn the region into a third world country as it has been disparagingly implied in the media. It reveals one. It revealed the disaster within the disaster. Grueling poverty rose to the surface like a bruise to our skin. If Katrina exposed the racism and inequality of the American South and the Gulf Coast in particular, the coronavirus crisis shows that these overlapping issues of race, class, inequality, and oppression are not regional afflictions, but are endemic to American society. The news asks, how could this be in all of the articles that they are now uh, sharing about inequality in the US? These are problems, as Astra said, of American capitalism. You do not have a society with 607 billionaires, fully 200 more billionaires than there were in 2010 without having crushing poverty. There are 38 million people living in poverty in the US because there are 600 billionaires. They are wealthy because of low wages. They are wealthy because of the absence of sick days. They are wealthy because of homelessness. They are wealthy because of foreclosures. They are wealthy because of evictions. Then some of them will become wealthy and even wealthier because of coronavirus. It is important to name the problem because there are those who will tell us that markets can work, that we can fundamentally fix the problems in US society without radical change. But there has never been a single moment in the history of this country where capitalism has not created enormous misery and oppression for tens of millions of ordinary people. This was a country founded on the genocide of its native population that relied on enslaved labor, working that land to generate enormous, unprecedented wealth, that then relied upon the exploitation of successive waves of migrant labor to multiply that wealth a million times over. And even in the so-called golden age of US capitalism in the 1940s and the 1950s, 
It came with the exclusion of black workers and women. The exclusion of black workers was so extreme that in the midst of the longest economic boom in U.S. history, black workers across the South rose up to crush Jim Crow segregation. And from the middle 1960s until the end of that decade, more than 500,000 African-Americans engaged in urban uprisings to demand access to the riches of American society. In fact, there has been no golden age of American capitalism. It has been an unbroken cycle of extraction, poverty, racism, sexism, oppression, exploitation, and struggle. Part of the mythology of American exceptionalism and the idea that this is the most just place on earth is the accompanying idea that it is a society that is inherently progressive, always improving and moving forward. In reality, the only forward movement has come through struggle. Naomi, as she talked about, has written about shock and how the political class has used social catastrophes to create policies that allow for private plunder. She calls it disaster capitalism or the shock doctrine. But she has also written that in these moments that create opportunity for the forces of reaction, there are also opportunities for ordinary people to transform these conditions in ways that benefit the mass of humanity. The scale of the, corona, the coronavirus crisis is so profound, profound that there is also now an opportunity to remake our society for the greater good while rejecting the pernicious individualism that has left us utterly ill-equipped for the moment. The class-driven hierarchy of our society will encourage the spread of this vicious virus unless dramatic and previously unthinkable solutions are immediately put on the table. As Bernie Sanders has counseled, we must think in unprecedented ways. This includes universal health care, an indefinite moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, the cancellation of student loan debt, a universal basic income, and the reversal of all cuts to food stamps. These are the most basic measures that can staunch the immediate crisis of deprivation caused because of the mi millions of layoffs and the millions more to come. But emergency stop gaps also show what is possible. If moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures are possible in the midst of a crisis, why can't they be possible in so-called normal times? If the, it's possible to put pause, why is that not a possibility in so-called normal times? If it's possible to release people from prison, to decarcerate in times of crisis, why is that not possible in normal times? The Sanders campaign was an entry point into this discussion most recently. It is shown public appetite and even desire for vast spending. And these desires do not translate into votes because they seem a risky endeavor when the consequence is four more years of Donald Trump. But the mushrooming crisis of the coronavirus is changing the calculus. As federal officials announce this new trillion dollar, uh, trillion dollar aid package, we can never go back to banal discussions of how will we pay for it. How can we not? Now is a moment to remake our society anew. That's it. Thank you, Kanga.
Alright, so this was a video that came out yesterday. You can find it at Haymarket Books, at Haymarket Books on Twitter. I'm going to play some more music for a bit, and then we'll be back. Stay tuned. You see this girl, this girl's in love with Yes, I'm in love Who looks at you the way I do When you smile I can tell We know each other very well How They say you think I'm fine. Yes, I'm in love. And what I do to make you mine, tell me now, is it so? Just die. I've heard some talk. They say you think I'm fine. Yeah.
let someone start believing in you let him hold out his hand let him touch you and watch what happens when someone who can touch you and watch what happens cold no I won't believe your heart it's cold maybe just afraid to be deep love to give give that deep love to you and what magic you see let him give his heart to you let that someone Say it. 
Weekly review. I'm joined by Lev Wait, Lev, thanks for calling in. Thanks so much for having me and hosting Absolutely. the show. Been wanting to have you on the show for a while now, so it's good to hear your voice. Thank you. Always good to hear yours. Yeah. So how how have you been lately? Yeah, great question. <laughs> I um I was just on a call that mm-hmm. was uh hosted by Malkia Krill and um Malachi Garza, and mm-hmm. I forgot their their other name. And um, beautiful call we had. Um, there might have been a hundred people on there, and mostly people of color. And uh, we were infiltrated. 
um, and the first time this happened to me on Zoom, oh. where we actually were attacked by no. white supremacists. And it was, um, you know, I was seeing, you know, um, you know, this experience of so many of us going online now because that's our option. Yeah. And how it's making us more vulnerable yeah. to um, not just the eyes of corporations and the government, but also um, to groups who um, groups of people who are suffering so badly that um, you know this is this is what they do. This is what they go for. Uh, yeah, so so I was actually glad I didn't have to come on to one fifteen because I needed to just pull myself together. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, I actually spoke to someone immediately after, and um, because we were trying to figure out, we actually shifted Zoom links and 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 they 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 found us. And um, one of the participants who's Jewish and there was a lot of. Um, uh, Nazi images as well. Ugh. So, um, you know, just so sitting with them and um, holding, you know, the suffering and the fear behind that. And so, yeah, so I was grateful that I had just a few minutes to, like, drink water and ground myself um, because, you know, it's it's anger-provoking, even as sad as it is. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, that oh, I yeah, I I I feel that yeah. rage, and it's just oh, so, I I don't even have know, the words for it. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, and so these are the times that we're in, and the likely uh, likeliness of things becoming more difficult. Um. It's pretty high. So, um, and and that's going to be, you know, as as one person I was talking to this morning, individually, we have our own suffering, whatever that is, and it might be picking up the energy of those around us who are afraid, those around us who are angry, the idea that we can't go out. Yeah. Knowing that people are suffering in their homes. So there's... Um, you know, the the likelihood of, of the suffering increasing, I mean, it's actually predicted. So whether it's illness or uh, social um, uprisings. Yes. So this is, um, you know, um, in my introduction, what I didn't say is you know, I'm a mindfulness practitioner and a teacher. And this is partly why I do this work. Yeah, is because I think at another time I would be right now, and and it would be okay, but right now I might be crying. Yeah, because I um might go, I might take some of what happened personally, and I know that it's not personal. I know that these folks are going all over the internet interrupting wherever they can because they feel, you know, they're running away from their own traumas. Yes. They're running away from their own pain. And 
So I'm really grateful for my practice that can keep me grounded. And for those of you who may be new to the idea of meditation or mindfulness um, or even Buddhism as a philosophy or as religion, the idea is not that everything is fine. The idea is that I'm able to be with what is mm-hmm. without having an overreaction. Mm. That's so important. So uh, let me know if I'm gabbling too much. No, no, not at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting with what you've shared so far. Yeah. So, and and so that's the bigger work and the bigger practice that I want to, that I'm doing, um, whether it's uh, still figuring out the technology on my Facebook page at 9 a.m. or another page, is helping people to find a grounding within themselves mm-hmm. when when we are, whether we're being attacked um, externally from uh, forces or even internally when um, we might be uh, at this time challenged with seeing what's coming up in our thoughts, challenged with being alone with our mind, um, Oh, let's see if I can remember her name. Uh, I can't remember her name. I can see her face. There's an author who has this uh, phrase. She says that her mind is like a dangerous neighborhood. She never wants to be there alone. Mm. And and I and I and I'm so sorry. I can't remember her name. But um, um, so that's coming up. That's coming up for people as well. And. One of the things that I love to remind people are two things. One is that they are the most important person in their experience. And they can know that because they can only breathe for themselves. Yeah. That life is just for you. And so it doesn't mean that anyone is your child or your parent are not important. It just means that when you really honor yourself and love yourself, you are also more available for them. So that's the one thing. And let's see if I still remember the second thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm fortunate to um, be aging. And so there are some, um, <laughs> there are some difficulties that can come with that. Sure. Um, sure. So we said, ah, oh my goodness. Now I can't remember the second oh. thing. Oh, while you're thinking of it, I did look it up <laughs> oh, and it's, uh, it's Anne Lamott. <laughs> Who had the quote about? Yes, yeah. it is Anne Lamont. That's right, um, from the Bay Area. Um, thank you for looking that up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't remember the second thing, but that's okay. Um, yes, this is it. That we are all survivors. We don't all see ourselves that way. Because if you were me, everybody had it worse, and I could barely even fathom why I would have any compassion for myself at all. Mm. But the truth is we've all survived something. Yes. And some of us may have survived it with silver spoons and a high lofty beds and that kind of thing. Yeah. And some of us have survived physical and emotional and mental torment. Yes. The range. We, we've all survived something. 
And part of the practice, um, particularly in my area of teaching self-compassion, is to remind people to to ground there, to ground in that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that can look like lots of things. It doesn't have to look like um, remembering when, you know, you had to, you know, hide, right, yeah. uh, That or, or disassociate. Uh, these are certainly mechanisms that we've had to use. Um, and it might be that, you know, I'm going to I, – I forgot to do it yesterday, but I'm going to pull my teddy bear down from my closet, mm. give it a good dusting, and, like, just have a companion with me since I don't have children or animals. Yes. Um, and it might be that, you know, you have an extra cookie. It might be that you practice contemplating the lines on your hands, listening to your favorite music, dancing, getting a good sweat out, whatever that is. Yes. But you deserve to be grounded and be available to the various ways that life can also provide joy for us. Yes. And and I'm saying this, I, I knowing that, um, goodness gracious, you know, we all know stories of people in, you know, we've heard stories of people in slavery um, having to use music or find some way to soothe. Um, um, a beautiful life, what a story that was, you know, how many parents were doing that then, how many older siblings, or if you, A Beautiful Life is a story about the Holocaust and um, a man who creates a fantasy for his child mm-hmm. as they go through um, um, internment. And I can imagine now older siblings with younger siblings occasionally having to create fantasies in order for them to survive. So I don't want to say that it's easy. Yeah. I do want to say what's accessible for you. There is no there is no there there. It's what's what's accessible for you to be able to be calm in any moment, to be self-loving, be self-compassionate in in any moment. Mm. So without judgment and um and awareness. <sighs> That's very mm. helpful to hear. I've been talking for twelve minutes straight. Oh <laughs> no, it's all I mean it's it's so it feels really soothing and it it helps to center to hear that. So thank mm. you very much for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Oh, I'm just ugh. just like letting that land a bit and yeah. take it in because I think there's so much of that. What I was saying earlier is that I think it's difficult for some of us to have certain coping mechanisms that are no longer applicable based on the situation mm-hmm. that we're in. So mm-hmm. it's necessary to find other coping mechanisms and it can feel I think difficult for some of us who have just done a lot of work and trying to you know better our lives and better the lives of others and then to have this 
impediment be um, be in the way of you know focusing on healing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, right. More reason to be kind to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we have been stopped in our tracks. Yep. And while some of us saw it coming, nobody could know to what degree. Yeah. And we still don't know. Yes. So, um, one of the things I've been doing, and I'm going to try to squeeze it in today, is I go down to the water, mm-hmm. and I record the waves mm. and the, and the um, clouds and whatever's happening for the people who can't leave their homes. Oh, that's um, beautiful. Who are, I know people who are relatively healthy and are are um, drowning in fear. Mm. So providing for um, those who um, who need support. Yes. Right? There's no judgment, right? Yes. There's no judgment. And, and the other question that I often ask um, when anything happens, and and you know once I catch my own breath, if that's mess, if you know if for some reason I lost track, because the other part of this is there is no perfect way to be. Yeah. And the, the perfection is 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 just knowing that. Yes. That that this moment can only be perfect because that's all it is. Mm. That's all there is. Like uh, what whatever is happening, whatever is taking place, this is it, right? Uh, as Titnot Han says. Um, it's like this now. Mm. So what's the, what are the opportunities? What are the opportunities? And, and they are vast if we're willing to um, be in each moment. Mm. Be in the moment. Um, and those opportunities might include reaching out and calling and hearing voices from people that we've lost touch with. Yes. Letting people know that even people that we want to keep at a distance, we might just put a smiley face on their Facebook wall or a smiley text, um, mailing letters um, after we wash our hands. Yes. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Somebody mailed me a letter, and I'm like, well, they and like a 100 other people touched it. So, um, you know. Not being super paranoid is is uh, also helpful. Yeah, yeah. Right. The opportunity to do that thing that you said that you wanted to do, whether it's write a book, begin a journal, exercise, and oh my God, there's so much comedy online. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that you like? I mean, um, I think I sh- I don't know if I've shared it on my wall yet, but there's um. An American, a white guy, maybe Jewish. I actually haven't caught his name. It doesn't matter if he's Jewish, but you know what? You know, it's cool. And he, but he also speaks uh, Mandarin, mm. and so um, and he's fluent. And so he's a comedian in China. Oh wow! I believe like he has. He might live in both places. So he was in China when the Wuhan. Um, I'm sorry, I can't believe I just called it that. He was in Wuhan, Wuhan, 
when the virus started coming up. Mm-hmm. And so um, he, he, what he noticed was that um, on TikTok, which is like a quick videos uh, that people put up online, I haven't actually made one, but I, I might look closer at it. So on TikTok, which is often funny, silly things, um, you, there's a wall. So in China, they can't see TikTok in the United States. United States can't see TikTok in China. Oh. So he came back to the United States. I'm not sure how he managed to do that. But um, he just posted this like six or seven days ago. He came back to the United States and decided to do a fundraiser for all of the equipment that he knows that we're going to need. And um, even though this actually, I'm thinking he might have created this a little bit earlier, and so so that the Americans could see what was coming. And his his audience appeared to be mostly Chinese. And getting to my favorite part is he shows these uh, clips, or these TikTok clips, and there's one clip where this woman is leading like what looks like a bus tour through her house. And she's got on a, um, you know, like one of those McDonald's uh, headphones, and she's and she's telling people about different rooms. It's just my favorite thing because <laughs> they're playful, they're creative, and like the, the and they, there's like two or three people behind, you know, holding something that indicates that they're all on a tour, um, and just like so, I like silly so. And there's people doing lion dances and people who are preparing for the Olympics. And uh, it's just so I'll put that on my uh, Facebook wall. Uh, Fresh white is the Facebook wall. Great. But what is funny for you? What's funny for you, Roman? Um, I, I am having I did start watching Tiger King on Netflix. Oh, and um, I, I don't know if it was. Excuse me, intentionally funny, but uh, parts of it were kind of humorous. So Good. there's that. Good. Do you want to share? Um, I don't know how much you get to talk because I've been rambling. Do you? What are your coping mechanisms? Well, it used to be exercise. I used to really like going to. I say used to as if it were you know years and years ago. <laughs> <coughs> mm, excuse me. Um. Yeah, I mean, exercise would be really helpful. Meditation. I still try to meditate every day for at least 20 minutes, and that's helpful. Nice. Journaling and just getting some ideas out of my body. Um, mm-hmm. check, now, now that I'm starting to talk about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a lot. Uh, listening to music is helpful. <laughs> Checking in with folks. There's a lot of um, – I've, like, moved around a bit, and I feel like – I think a lot of us have feel like we've lived a lot of different lives and have been in mm-hmm. different circles, so it's been really – I really appreciate being able to check in with different folks from different parts of my life and to reconnect with people. And that makes me feel more hopeful and more connected since there is that sense of limitation going around with the lack of people seeing each other physically. And I think there's also Mm -hmm. that idea that people are wanting to, instead of calling it social distancing, people want to call it physical distancing because we're still socially connected. It's just physically not so much. Right. So, yeah, those are the things. Yeah, go ahead. No, I said nice. Oh, yeah. And I'm curious, um, what does your meditation practice do for you? It kind of, first of all, it stops me from looking at a screen, whether it be my phone Mm -hmm. or the computer, which is really helpful because I do, I 
can be somewhat addicted to the news or other things online. So it just kind of gets me, it stops me from looking at a screen. Excuse me, I'm going to just drink some more water. Yeah, go for it. And it also helps um, like clear my head a little bit, or at least helps me process some thoughts mm. where I'm, my mind is like constantly going all the time anyway. And it just provides me a moment just to be like, have a memory of something that happened, whether it be recently or a few years ago, just to like, or a dream I had the previous night <coughs> where I can just think about it and be like, oh yeah, that happened. How do I feel about that? Let me sit with my feelings for a few minutes and then kind of let it go. Mm. So it's a way of just, I think, yeah, processing, like allowing myself time to process um, how I've been feeling. Nice, nice, nice. Um, kind of know if I talked about this, but um, do you mind if I offer some tips for mindfulness? Sure, please. So I want to say that many people begin by saying, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do this or I don't like this. And I want to offer that that's because it's hard and it's hard for all of us. Um, it can be difficult for all of us, depending on your upbringing. I mean, there are people who grew up practicing um, and or in quiet play. But for the most part, know that your mind will wander when you sit and try to focus and, and just and know that that's okay and that's part of the practice. And so then once we sit and get quiet, finding an anchor, which could be anywhere we feel our breath most intently, it might be sounds without hearing, but just, I'm sorry, without listening and mm -hmm. wanting more, but just actually just the sounds that as they rise and fall. And the same with our body sensations. It might be that our point of focus is, just noticing the sensations in our body. Mm. So we anchor in these, in one or one of, or more of these places. And then the practice is simply to be with our breath. And, and I'll offer also totally fine to count your breath. You want to breathe normally and you're with your breath. And as you're going, if you can get to the third breath without a thought going <laughs> great, but, no, have that thought come and simply come back to your breath. So I've been using the term, uh, well, there isn't a term. I've been, well, actually, I've been using this idea that when you notice your mind is wandering, you win. It's a win. And you come back gently, you just come back to your breath, your mind wanders. So there is no such thing as a good or a bad meditation. The, um, uh, what was the, the way that I talk about it is sort of like just showing up is, is, is what's required. Just showing up and doing your practice of wandering and coming back, wandering and coming back. That's, that's, that's all it takes. Let me know if I left anything out. Uh, oh, no, hopefully that wasn't too long. No, no, not at all. And you know, we're here to we're here to talk. So it's you're fading. Much. Oh, sorry. Um, um, it's it's not too much at all. And you know, we're here to we're here to talk. So I appreciate you sharing these ideas. 
Yeah, I just, there's so many people who are afraid of it. And, um, and I think, like you said, um, things will come up after a while. And maybe some of you already have a practice. And you notice that there are memories or um, that are coming up that might be challenging. Um, I, I want you to know that your mind um, most likely won't bring anything up that you can't deal with. Mm. And that asking for help is, the, is a beautiful thing. Yes. So just getting a therapist or a counselor um, – who can hold you and walk you through is actually a, a beautiful thing. Um, and as well, great ideas might come up. Yes. Oh, and definitely. if you're, if you're suffering with those, get a coach, get a friend who can support you in being accountable to you. Mm. Yes. <sighs> something, something else that makes me think of too is that just how in our life we're kind of told to constantly be productive and doing things. And I think there's that natural reaction to be like, oh, but I'm sitting still or I'm not doing something or I'm not talking or making something. And how that's totally okay just to be still and to seemingly not do anything. And it's, it's a definite, um, it's helped me in terms of just that being still and trying to relax a bit. Yes. In this world where basically our job is to hold up the plutocracy, yep, we can lose track of our humanity mm. and this gorgeous gift of life. Yes, that um, that I know that it shows up differently for different people, and and that. There are also ways that we can each touch into joy, beauty, and, um, well, we'll stick with joy and beauty when we can, when we can, um, work, work or actually allow it is more like it. Yes. So I'm not saying, I, cause I, I know that there are people who right now are suffering in their homes with partners. And with parents, I know that, that that's happening. And in the moments when you can find a, a, a moment to be quiet and a moment to sort of be with what is, if, you, if there's a window you can stare out of. Part of the reason why I'm posting pictures of sky and water as well on my page, if there's a photo that you can get lost into, like you deserve these um, these ways of being in touch with your creator, in touch with the planet, which really wants you here and wants you to get through. So I definitely don't want to say I'm not at all saying that this is that it's easy that you sit back and you do your meditation and everything's fine. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm I'm acknowledging that it's difficult. It's been difficult for me in my life. And, and I, I really want to imprint on you that you deserve, you deserve the opportunity to um, experiment and play with some of what we've, what we've shared here, to find a tiny piece of joy and a tiny piece of whatever makes you happy and see if it can grow from there. 
I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you, Lev. Oh, it's really beautiful. Mm. Oh, so, mm. um, as we wrap up here, I wanted to um, offer you the chance if you wanted to share a place folks can find your work or reach out, if that's something you wanted to share with the listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah, as I mentioned, um, I'm on Facebook as Fresh White. As in, yes, sheets and towels, fresh white. And then my um, organization is called Affirmative Acts, Affirmative Acts, A-C-T-S, dot org, Affirmative Acts, dot org. And you can learn more about my work there. I am trying to figure out um, how to best promote. I'll be slashing um rates for my coaching so that I can offer that to more people at this time. Mm -hmm. So I do do coaching, counseling, and mindfulness uh, sessions with folks. So please reach out, um, make an appointment for uh, 30 minutes are actually free. So if you just need to chat or have questions, um, you can find that information on my, on my website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for calling in. It's so good to hear your voice. Thank you for hosting the show. I hope that um, it reaches everyone who um, and and everyone benefits from it. Reaches everyone and everyone benefits. Uh, yes. I hope thank so. Thank you, too. Roman. Thank you. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye. All right. Big thanks to Lev for calling in. And again, you can check out Lev's website if you go to affirmativeacts.org. All right, so we are ending, ending up the show here. I'm going to play one more song. And this is from the conversation that we heard earlier. Again, you can find it at Haymarket Books on their Twitter, at Haymarket Books. And I'm just going to cue into the audio right now and have the musician introduced. Oh, so thanks again, everyone. It's going to take a moment to get this all started. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Please do support the radio station, Mutiny Radio. Go to mutinyradio.fm. We have the uh, GoFundMe up. Also, if you would like, we uh, have a Patreon up for this show, and you can donate at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Please do check out previous shows. We've got the archive of the last maybe five years or so of the show on mutinyradio.fm. So check out the archive. Yes, I am. Yes. So we've had a lot of great guests um, come into the studio and or call in like we did today. So please do check out the archives. And we'll be back next week as far as we know. So have a great week, everyone, and take care of each other. And then this is uh, Leah Rose. And just taking one moment here to get this to to play. And... Take him one more moment here. I tried to get it all set up, and uh, looks like I'm just going to have to refresh the page. So, so while I'm doing that, thanks again, folks, for tuning in. And, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but for anybody that doesn't, this is a really good place to start. <laughs> Incredible humans. And, um, 
uh, Kiang, that was absolute fire when you did that entire <laughs> speech. Uh, thank you. And I, I took a lot from that. Um, I'm going to play a song called The Times They Are Changing from 1964. And it's unfortunate that this song is more relevant today than ever. And I think um, the more that people understand the history of this country, um, you know, just like Kiinga said, the, it's founded on genocide, the deep racism that it's been a part of this the whole time. Um, the more people can really understand the history, the less surprised we are to find ourselves where we are uh, right now in this moment. It's not really that things are, um, they're not really getting worse, they're getting more exposed, right? We're, we're all of a sudden seeing the real, the real, real. So, um, man, yeah, thank you all for doing this. Uh, I'm super happy to be here. Here we go. Soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you'd better start swimming Or you'll sink like a stone For the times, they are a-changing Come writers and critics Who prophesize with your pen Keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming. For the loser now will be later to win, and the times they are a changing. Changing. Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. There's a battle outside and it's raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are a-changing Come mothers and fathers throughout the land Oh, what is it? Come mothers and fathers throughout the land What is the words of Bob Dylan, man? He writes so many lyrics. Um, let's go. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. 
Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can lend your hand for the times they are a changing. The times they are a changing. The times they are a changing. Now the lion it is drawn, the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast as the present now will later be past the order is rapidly fading and the first one now will later be last for the times they are a change times the times for the times they are changing oh here here to let you know It's your boy Sifo here, here to let you know that the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th, 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Prime Next Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834.
Radio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube. We watch the best movies that, uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at Mutiny Radio. FM. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to 